Hey, and welcome to the Motherhood Simplified Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Lockwood. And if you ever look around your house and wonder where the heck did all this stuff come from and how am I ever going to get it out, you are in the right place. I'm a mom of five who decluttered her home back in 2013 when my family and I decided to move from Alaska to Florida with one suitcase each. And I do not recommend it. What I do recommend is learning how to declutter without becoming a full-blown minimalist, which means learning to find the balance of what your family needs and wants without it being so much that it overwhelms you on a daily basis. So if that sounds good to you, you are going to love this podcast. Let's dive into the episode. been trying to declutter your house and not been as successful as you like, I am willing to bet that I can help you figure out exactly why. There are a lot of reasons that moms feel like they can't declutter, declutter, whether it's their kids or their spouse or the time or the energy or just simply not knowing what to do, where to take things, how to donate, right? How to do it mindfully, how to not be wasteful. Uh, Plus you're worried about like, what if I need it? You know, I wasted so much money on this. What if I need it again and I can't get it? There is so much that goes into decluttering as a mom. And I promise that if you have thought it or felt it, I have heard it before or experienced it myself. And that is exactly why I created this training called how to create your mom proof decluttering plan. And I've done a lot of decluttering checklists, challenges, courses, programs in the past, and they work. And this training really is the framework for every single thing that moms need to consider when it comes to decluttering their home. It's the plan. We're actually going to build your plan together. It's following through with your plan and it's including your family and even learning how to make this process as enjoyable as possible. Because most people feel like The task is daunting or just another thing on their to-do list, and I don't want it to feel like that for you. So this free training, how to create your mom-proof decluttering plan, you can go to motherhoodsimplified.com forward slash DIY to get it, or you can just check the show notes of this episode and you will find it. Come get it. I know there is so much information about there. A lot of it is much the same. Five steps to declutter your house, you know? Here's the checklist to declutter this area of your house, but none of them really show you the full scope of what goes into doing this start to finish. And that's exactly what's in this training. So go check it out, motherhoodsimplified.com forward slash DIY, or check the description of this episode to go get it today. Welcome to the Motherhood Simplified Podcast. I'm your host, Krista Lockwood, a mother of five who has been living a clutter-free and simplified life since 2013. On the surface, I teach you how to declutter your home because you probably didn't think motherhood was going to be a series of cleaning up the same messes all the time, or that you would be spending so much time just trying to get your house cleaned up and organized. There is so much life to live in your motherhood beyond those laundry mountains, dishes stacked to the sky, and the tornadoes that you pick up all day. I'm here to help you simplify your days and home so that you can be the most powerful mother you can be and stop living the narrative that says mom life is synonymous with always behind, always exhausted, and totally stressed out. I record these episodes during my everyday life. So yeah, mom life really is a lot to live through. But it's so much easier when your home is free from unnecessary burdens and work for you in the form of clutter. You can have a pretty clean home most days, even with a bunch of kids, work, homeschooling, and everyday mom life without it consuming your entire life. You deserve a home that works for you and your family. And that's exactly what you'll learn from this podcast. Thank you so much for pushing play today. Let's begin. everybody welcome to today's episode i am here with jocelyn hubbard i'm super excited 
first of all, I have to let you guys know, like behind the scenes, she's a mother of five now, right? Or five six. Kids. Okay, five. <laughs> I didn't know if it was the six. She just had a baby. We both have five kids. So, you know, we're recording this podcast with 10 children between the both of us. <laughs> and we're good, right? Like, I love getting to interview moms like you, Jocelyn, who like we get on and we're like throwing our hair up in the bun, like we get this done <laughs> and everybody be cool. Okay. Um, so I'm really excited to speak with Jocelyn because she teaches teachers, um, which I used to be a teacher as well on how to create a culturally responsive classroom. And the other reason that I, I am so excited to talk to you, Jocelyn, is because I was also a teacher and I take a lot of what I used to do in the classroom and apply it to home. So like, you know, I talk about like decluttering and simplifying spaces, how you to do that in your classroom and now how to do it at home. And you teach, you know, teachers how to do this in their classrooms and you also apply it at home as well. And she does homeschooling and teaches homeschoolers how to do this as well. So I'm really excited to talk to you about how to create a culturally, you know, responsive. I love the way that you say that responsive environment for children and the home, you know, in the classrooms and at home and to learn from you on how we can actually do this as parents and teachers as well. Cause I know there's a lot of teachers in this audience. So thank you for being here. And do you want to tell us just a little bit more about yourself and how you got into what you're doing now. Sure, thanks Kristen. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. Um, my name is Jocelyn, as you said, and I am a mother of five. I just recently gave birth to our fifth child. So there's lots of joy and chaos in our house at all times. <laughs> but I, I started my journey, um, I mean, I guess it was from childhood, right? Like I was that kid who knew that she wanted to be a teacher. Like there was never any confusion. My mom said I would bring home extra worksheets and force my younger siblings to be my students. You're gonna learn today. Um, so I always knew that I wanted to teach. Now I'm sure that my uh, teaching methods were not culturally responsive back then, but <laughs> they have definitely evolved. Um, when I moved from, um, I used to live in Ohio. So when I moved from Ohio, down south, I was kind of hit with a with a culture shock myself. And I just assumed that because I, I mean, I identify as a black woman. Um, and I just assumed that because, you know, well, I'm, you know, a, a person of color and um, have a diverse background that I should be good to teach all types of students. But the reality is, is that um, I wasn't. Um, I had students that were Native American and Mexican-American. I also had black students and students that, um, that identify as, as white and a couple of other you know, races and ethnicities. And I was not prepared. You know, I did not know a lot about some of the history of, of um, some of my students as far as their like racial background and ethnic background. And I wanted to be able to, to make sure that when they came into my classroom, they knew that they mattered. Right, because for example, so many of my students would say, Miss, you're the only one that lets us speak Spanish in your class. And I said, Oh, okay, well, that's your heart language, you know, and I want you to feel comfortable in my classroom. And so I, I went on this kind of mission to make sure that all of my students felt affirmed, welcomed, and celebrated in my classroom. And it, you know, it took a lot of work and it's still taking work. Like I still do research and I still talk to my students and I still talk to different parents about experiences that they had in the classroom or experiences that they have just in the world so that I can tweak and refine the training that I do for teachers um, and then also the types of lessons that I bring to my students. So that's kind of where I started. That's beautiful. I wish that I had known you and maybe we're doing this at the same time, but I wish I had known you back when I was teaching um, because specifically what you said about the culture shock, um, I went from teaching in Alaska, which I mean, is its own subculture up there, you know, and just thinking like, that's the way that the world is, mm -hmm. right? And that's the way that classrooms look. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I'll just say it like everyone was white up there where I was at and I moved to Florida and I, I moved to a school. Yeah, I know you're like, okay, that's different. <laughs> But it was exactly what you said. It was culture shock because all of a sudden 
I was the only white teacher mm -hmm. and I was in classrooms where the majority of the kids first language was Spanish mm -hmm. and I had to learn I wish I had known this word back then culturally responsive to be able to do that because my worldview was so different from all of the students that I was teaching and I was teaching um, you know like Montessori so kids like three to six um, and then six to nine but it, it would have been so helpful to yeah. have somebody like you like giving me these these words and giving me this information of like this is what's going on and this is how you can be better at it well and you know Krista I think a lot of times people like I said I assumed that because I identified as a black woman that I should be able to teach black students with no issue and the reality is that we all have um, a culture right like we we all have different backgrounds I was raised by two parents a man and a woman and they came from the east coast and so that you know kind of tradition and then whatever they grew up with like all of those things influenced who I was and who I became I went to to college my parents went to college so all of those things influence who we are and our worldview right our perspective but our students they come from a variety of different places and backgrounds whether they all identify as you know as a part of the same racial group or not mm -hmm. yeah and and the thing about a classroom is that you don't know you don't know what you're going to get right you have no That's idea right. you do not know <laughs> you're going to get all kinds of things and even i think when you when we talk about diversity it's really important to remember that diversity is not just your race right like like you said like i had students who had two two moms right two adoptive moms right yep. or adoptive parents or one parent right or single parents or you know a widowed parent and all of these different things so i guess my my first question for you is when you say you know culturally responsive what does that what does that actually mean to you so that just so that people have like a definition of like what to look out for when they're creating these these environments whether it's in the classroom or at home mm -hmm. so as far as being culturally responsive i mean i think you know you you break that term up and you look at culture and even you look at being responsive right so obviously culture is a lot of times well so a lot of times when we say the word culture we always think of things that are foreign to us, right? Things that are that are different. We don't necessarily think about ourselves in our own culture, but culture is, it's the tangible and intangible things that make up who we are. So for example, some of the tangible things would be like the foods that we eat, the music that we enjoy, the clothes that we wear. Um, and then some of the intangible things are some of our beliefs, right? There, there are times when um, you, you go into an environment and you, and you feel it, right? Because there is an expectation that goes without saying. So I was on Facebook the other day and a mom posted, she was like, how many of you were raised at a time when children were supposed to be seen and not heard, right? And I was like, whoa, that's definitely how I was raised. My sister and I talk about it all the time that our, our children are, they are growing up in a time that's so much different. Like they can you know, make connections and raise their hands and they can have their input. But when we were raised, no, the adults are talking, you leave the room. And that was without set, being said, right? So that's a, a part of our culture as well. Um, so you think about that, right? As far as culture and then being responsive, right? How we respond and the ways in which we respond. Are we being proactive or reactive? And typically in a culturally responsive classroom, you really wanna be proactive. So thinking about understanding the culture of all of your students. And it's funny because a lot of times my students will say, cause I talk to them about this. I say, look, we're building a culturally responsive class. And they're like, well, how do you know what our culture is miss? And I say, because I, I talk to you, I engage in conversation with you, right? And I listen and I ask you certain questions so that I know where you come from. Um, so being culturally responsive, just understanding who your students are, where they come from, you know, giving those surveys at the very beginning of the school year is is so important, but it's about how are we using that after the fact? Is it just to be able to file that away or are we using it, you know, ongoing as we're planning different assignments for our students and thinking, okay, these are the perspectives that my students bring to the classroom. Let's say just for simplicity's sake that they all come from a two-parent household, both of their parents went to college 
and um, they live in like a suburban neighborhood, right? So that's that's great that our, that they all have this background, but now I need to think about what's missing. What perspectives are they missing? And I need to bring those into the classroom so when they get out of my classroom and they get out of school and they get into the real world, that, they're, they're, that there's not a culture shock or like it's not so drastic, right? I mean, I said that I had that culture shock when I moved down south and it was because, yeah, there's, there's different accents and I couldn't sometimes understand what people were saying because of the accent. Um, just different words that, that we're using or the ways in which we're using those words. Um, so really just, like I said, just really getting to know the culture of your students and incorporating that into the way in which you teach them. Um, because there were times when I could talk a certain way to my students, but they wouldn't understand me. Mm -hmm. And communication is more about the receiver than about the sender. Um, and then bringing in perspectives that are missing from the classroom. Um, and then honestly, also really, I should have said this first, but it starts with the teacher to understanding her, her, his or her own culture. And then, you know, thinking about that. That's so good. And that was, like, that was actually what I was going to ask you is like, I think it can be really overwhelming. I know for me, specifically as a teacher at the beginning of the year, when you have, um, and I used to do Head Start too. So we would actually like sit one-on-one -on -one with the families mm -hmm. and it used to be like pretty overwhelming to have to see all of the, you know, all of that, the diversity, just to say it, like all of the diversity and like figuring out how to actually balance it. Um, and I'll just be super honest too, that it sometimes was like so overwhelming that it was easier to just not, like just to pretend like, ah, you know, we're just gonna teach everybody in this way because there's 26 people who I'm trying to connect with and do you have any like tips for just like simplifying that and I'd love to hear your thoughts and then I can kind of share what I figured out doing it in Florida um, mm -hmm. and kind of what that looked like but do you have any tips for simplifying that and making it less intimidating I do I do because I think that that is the number one question right whenever I go into school and I get ready to do um, a training, a lot of times the first question is like, I don't know where to start. Like I have a ton of students and where do I start? So I think for, for teachers in particular, not to get overwhelmed, just to start with one piece, right? So like looking at your curriculum saying, okay, this is what I have to teach. And then saying, okay, now let me pull out maybe my favorite unit. What, what is the unit that I love to teach? I'll pull that unit out. And then I start with one lesson that's inside of that unit. Okay, now we look at this lesson right here. Now, I wanna think about, um, well, there, so there are three anchor questions that I always have teachers ask when they're looking at their lessons. The first is, what are your students learning about themselves? So in this lesson, how are they learning about their own cultural perspectives, right? And understanding their own beliefs and giving them those words, say, look, this is, these are our beliefs and these are your expectations, like so that they know what to call it. So it's not just like this, I don't know, this woo-woo thing. So what are your students learning about themselves? And then the second question is, what are your students learning about their peers? So now as they are engaging with their classmates in discussion and conversation, how are they learning about their peers, um, like the expectations that they have or, their um, their belief systems and understanding that it's okay to have a different expectation for this assignment. It's okay, or it, it is okay to have a different perspective about the way that this situation is should be handled. And then the last question is, what are your students learning about the world around them? So those are three ways I think that we that you can really start, and it's not overwhelming. So it's like, okay, I'm starting with my students. What do they already know? What are they learning? What are they learning about their peers? And what are they learning about the world around them? Does that make sense? Yes. Oh my gosh, that's so good. And like I said, I wish I had had that as a teacher. <laughs> um, because I think I was kind of figuring that out, but I just didn't have the words for it. And that, mm -hmm. that would have been so helpful. So what I learned, you know, being in Florida and all of a sudden having like everything totally different was like you said, like. I think it made it easier to take it, take the pressure off of me to be like, you don't have to like, you don't have to like fix anything, right? You're not like trying to fix anything. You're not trying to like change anything. All you need to do is be aware and like understand how that 
presents in the classroom. And for me, when I was doing it, it was being mindful of the fact that like half of the families had only been in the United States for like a year or more or were first generation children Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, just like understanding that and being like all of this content that I'm trying to teach them, like numbers and letters and, and stuff like isn't super relevant, right? Like I can't teach them four to five-year-old preschool stuff because they can't even understand the language. (laughs) I literally can't teach them. So it was just, that was, that was kind of an extreme thing. But then it was also trying to figure out how to integrate them into this space, right? Because how are they supposed to make friends if they can't even communicate with the other kids in the classroom, right? They don't speak the same, because it wasn't all Spanish. There was some like Creole and French and and things like that. But it was was really interesting to like figure that out, but also like relating to like their family dynamics and even like the things that they brought for lunch. You know, we had a lot of like vegan kids who would bring vegan meals and like, it was just a lot to manage and it would have been a lot simpler to be like, okay, like you don't have to like change anything. All you have to do is like put yourself in their shoes and be like, what are they going to get from this? Right? Like when they're walking into the classroom, what are they seeing and how are they seeing how they fit into that? Um, and also, I mean, I think helping them to, to learn some of those bigger life lessons, because even if you do get all the way through the curriculum, but have they really learned it because they haven't made any points of connection so like you said just especially for um, for students as they are learning English as a second language or because you were in a classroom that where there were so many different languages being spoken and you know different um different experiences as the, the students were coming into the United States and there are different home dynamics helping them to to understand the importance of like perseverance to understand the importance of, of um, continuing to try and to, to work hard. You know, like, what does that look like to, to a preschooler? What does that look like to a kindergartner? What does it look like to their parents? And kind of helping to like bridge some of those gaps. You know, I mean, I um, work as a school teacher predominantly with like upper uh, students, like middle and high schoolers. And so obviously I can just ask them like, what does respect mean to you? You know, what, what is it? What do you expect to get from this? Or what do you expect to get from that? And I get so many different answers, but I'm helping them to see that, look, even if you don't not always get the right answer, quote unquote, that you took the time to think about this situation, that you took the time to really like work through it and come up with an answer, I'm proud of you. And you should be proud of yourself. Yeah, yes, exactly. And it can, it, it really can be that simple. I think sometimes we get so caught up, especially in, 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 teaching as teachers and when we have all of this pressure to like perform and get their tests right which hopefully will change a little bit after this last year I hope so I do Um, yeah but I mean that was even one thing that I spent a few years in Florida like working like within the local whatever they call it like it's a government basically the local the school boards I can't remember the name of it they had a name (laughs) of it in Florida (laughs) but you know the people who decide like these are the tests that they need to pass. And I'm like, these are mm-hmm. irrelevant. These are, I can't even do the initial assessment with them right? because they can't understand the language, right? Like mm-hmm. you need people in here who can actually communicate with them. Like I can't ask them these questions and get an yeah. answer because I don't understand. <laughs> hey, right, so there's that, but then also there is the cultural barrier of this expectation of what we all know. So when I create questions for my students, I try to give them like this wide range of, of experiences, even in the questions, right? And we talk through it. So I'm gonna use names from different parts of the world. And I'm gonna use, um, if we're talking about going to get food and creating a recipe, it's not just gonna be like a traditional recipe for, um, I don't know, like uh, an apple pie or something like that, right? I'm gonna go and say, what's a recipe that might be used in a small town um, in, um, in India or go, you know, into Colombia or, you know what I mean? I want to bring that into the classroom and I tell them, hey, we're going to read this, this example and it's coming from this part of the world um, because so many times you, you see those questions. And again, it's like, so if, when I was working with my students a few years ago, one of the questions 
was asking them about a child that had like a Walkman and they were walking down the street. And my students were like, miss, what is a Walkman? Because yeah. that is, you know, that was, even though, of course, that was my lifetime, right? I had a Walkman and a disc player and all these things, just, you know, a couple of generations removed, they don't know what that is. And so I feel like that's a problem that we face so many times with standardized testing as well is whose definition of standard, whose definition of, oh, this is something that we should all know. If I don't play baseball, you giving me an example about baseball, if I don't play hockey and I don't, you know, I don't understand these things, but you're assuming that everyone does. And now the student is stuck because they're like, I don't know, I don't know how to play hockey. I, I don't know what the rules are. And then they don't answer the question. Yeah. Yeah. And on that same example of like these very, they seem like we don't pay attention to it as adults and like as people who are creating these tests, but there is one in Alaska where um, there's bush communities of people who live like in the bush where mm -hmm. their food is literally sent to them on planes twice a year. And one of the questions is for the kids is where does, where does pineapple grow? And most of the kids say <laughs> in a can or on a plane. And yeah. of course they're getting that wrong. <laughs> right, right. But wrong to who? Yeah, wrong to who? Wrong to the people who live in places where pineapples can grow or mm -hmm. from the places where it literally comes from a can or a plane, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I remember that was like my first year of teaching and I was like, I feel like there's some like holes here. <laughs> I don't think this is working. <laughs> um, so... I have one more question and then we can move into um, how to actually apply this in your classroom. And if you're listening in your mom, how you can apply this into your home too. But um, how important do you think it is for the, the teacher to know about their own culture? 100% hands down the first step. It is, it is so important. And when I, when, I, when I train teachers, that is the first thing that we do is we start with them. We start with their culture and understanding it and thinking about how their culture impacts them as an educator. Um, I did a training around Christmas. Well, the training wasn't about Christmas, right? But it was around the Christmas time of year. And so the, the huge thing that was weighing on me was just how we center Christmas. I mean, I, I said Christmas and I'm sure everyone's thinking, oh yeah, that was in December, right? Because that's what we think of when we get to November and December, we're thinking about traditionally um, holidays that are traditionally centered around the Christian faith. But when you are talking about a culturally responsive classroom, what about your students that do not celebrate Christmas and you've got a Christmas tree up and you're doing Elf on the Shelf and you're giving them rewards for you know good behavior or excellent work in the classroom and it's a little eraser with Santa Claus on it. And like that, that means nothing to them, right? So like, as a teacher thinking about, okay, well, what are my beliefs and what are the things that I traditionally center or I put forward or I elevate and saying, how does that impact me as an educator? Because then I'm centering those things and it might be making some of my students feel uncomfortable or isolated. I mean, I had students that were Jehovah's Witness and so they didn't celebrate any holidays. And so now how am I you know, minimizing them and the value of, of their beliefs by making this huge deal out of Christmas um, and, and not, you know, making sure that they're being seen as well. So 100% the yeah. first thing. <laughs> yeah. And we are very, and I can even think back to when I was first teaching, we are unintentionally, like you said, dismissive, mm -hmm. but that's still not an excuse to like continue doing it. Yeah. And I remember too, in Florida, um, the first place that I taught, you know, was like, the language barrier was the biggest thing. And then I moved to a different part of Florida and about half or more of the classroom were East Indians. And so Diwali was a big thing. Mm -hmm. And it was really interesting. It was, it was, it was the craziest thing. It was like, oh my gosh, like I've, I've always thought that this was just what everybody did. And then all of a sudden you're like, okay, no, like there's other things. And so I'm sharing that with you guys because it's embarrassing for me, right? Cause I didn't know, but that's okay. Right? right. Like it's okay. Like just acknowledge it and then move on in a different way. Because I was like, man, there, there's a lot of people out here and there's a lot of kids. And I can always think back to like my classrooms in Alaska, which were very monotone just, and like remembering like a few kids of being like, man, like I, 
accidentally made a place that probably didn't feel very inviting to them because mm -hmm. everyone else was doing all this stuff and they weren't specifically right. the Jehovah's Witness and specifically like kids who celebrate Hanukkah and it was just kind of like overlooked or it was a by like a um like a one-off mention of like oh and also some people celebrate Hanukkah not realizing that like that those few kids like that was their thing it wasn't just bypassing lesson it was their thing so mm -hmm. now you guys know that's my embarrassing secret <laughs> no, but you know what but thank you for sharing that because like I mean all of us have that like it doesn't matter that's why I say you know I thought going in oh because I'm this black woman that I'm I'm ready for it all and I wasn't and I know that I did probably during my first few years of teaching as I was learning and being becoming aware I probably did make some students feel like they weren't as welcome in the classroom as I, you know, as I wanted them to actually feel. And it's okay. Like, um, I believe it's, um, oh boy, I want to say Maya Angelou, but I don't, I don't think it was her quote, but it's, you know, it's when you know better, you do better. Right. And so when you become aware, then just move forward from there. But like, you can't start moving forward until you acknowledge that, okay, this is something that I've, you know, that maybe I haven't done so great with in the past, but I want to really figure this out. And I want to do so much better because I want my students to have the best learning experience possible. Yeah. And don't be like, don't beat yourself up over it and don't stay there because then you won't, you can't move forward. <laughs> Not at all. And, yeah. you know, because listen, like the other thing too, that I like to address right at the beginning is a lot of times people will say, well, I don't, you know, this, this, this type of training, I feel like it could be uncomfortable because I'm going to say the wrong thing, right? Or people are going to judge me. And I say, well, especially this year, right? As I was pregnant with my fifth child, and I know you probably understand this. I'm like, hey, judgment city over here. When I tell people, oh, I'm pregnant with our fifth child. Oh my, yeah. well, why would you want to do that? Was it an accident? You know, <laughs> you know what causes that? Right. Like, yeah, right. Like, you, you know how that happens, right? Like, people are always going to have their own thoughts and you're going to be judged. I mean, that's the world we live in, but it's not about what other people think about you as far as like, it's, it's about you being able to, to acknowledge kind of where you are. And then, like you said, be able to move forward from there. Yeah. Yeah. And you, yeah, just, yeah. Don't stay stuck there. Don't stay stuck in the perfectionism or beating yourself up over not getting it perfect because nobody does. And that's okay. No one uh, does. So on this note, like, we're going to talk about the three three things that people can specifically do to create a culturally responsive classroom. Your three P's, um, picture books, play, and perspective. So can you share with us how to do this? Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, th this is relevant to the classroom, but it's also relevant to, to the home as well, right? As a, as a mother of five, I try to really incorporate all of these things with my children as well. And I will just say, you know, a lot of times people say, well, but this can't be done with like younger children. My kids are nine, six, four, two, and a month as of yesterday. <laughs> so, you know, it, and it can be done. It's about the way in which I approach this, right? So as far as picture books, whether it's in the classroom or at home, I try to make sure that I have a wide range of picture books with characters that look like my children and characters that do not look like my children. Um, and just making sure that the, the stories that I'm sharing are not just about the things that, that, that are familiar to me as far as with my traditions, right? So like we talked about celebrating holidays a couple of minutes ago. I remember talking with my oldest about, you know, about Christmas and I said, right, but you know that there are other holidays where um, that are celebrated around this time as well. And a lot of times those holidays use light as just like we do when we are celebrating Christmas, right? You put the lights on the Christmas tree or people put lights on their, on their house to decorate, but there are other holidays where they use light as well. So that was a really great way to, for him to understand that there are some similarities with some of the different holidays and well, why do they use light mom? And why does everyone not celebrate this? And, you know, so it really led to some good conversation around that. And so I was able to share picture books with him so that he could see the representation as well. Like here's a book about Kwanzaa. Here's, here is a book about Hanukkah. Here's a book about, you know, some different holidays and that can be done in the classroom just as easily as it can be done 
in the home. And I try to rotate the books that I have with my, with my own personal children. But this is a good practice for um, teachers as well, especially if you have limited space, right? Like just rotating the books as you're thinking about different seasons of the year, different holidays that are coming up, um, putting certain books up as featured books so that your students or your, or your children are able to access those and just browse them at their own time and say, okay, I'm becoming familiar with these concepts. And when you actually read the book with them or to them, then they can really ask much more focused questions because they're more familiar with what they're seeing. Um, and of course, I always have a ton of picture book recommendations all the time. I have some recommendations on my website and I try to rotate those out as well. And on my Instagram, I'm always like talking about different books and like why I like them, um, how they can be useful in the classroom or in the home. And then as far as play, I mean, that is uh, something that is, I guess people traditionally think about that with younger students, right? Like preschool age, because you do a lot of purposeful play, you've got the dramatic play area and um, thinking about what, what your students are seeing in that area. So like, what's in, what's in your toy box? Does your child um, have, and when I say child, I mean your students or your, your children, um, do they have dolls that are both male and female dolls? Do they have dolls that are, are different shades? So they could be Hispanic or black or white or, um, or Asian, you know, they, they could be any of these things, but they, they're different shades and they wear different um, clothing and accessories that help your, your child to see that this, that this doll identifies with a particular race, ethnicity, 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 if I can talk, um, religious background, etc., so that they are becoming exposed to those things, and you can start a conversation with your children as you're as you're playing with them, right? As they're putting the clothes on the doll, and you talk about, well, why does this doll wear this type of clothing, or why does this doll, you know, have this type of hair, and talking through all of those things. I mean, honestly, I have boy. I have boys and girls as far as my own um, personal children and all of them have dolls, right? So with my two-year-old, we bought him a doll for Christmas this year because I was pregnant and we knew we were gonna be having another baby and it was, you know, it was a little girl. So we bought him a little girl doll. And honestly, it was, it was a white doll. Um, and so some people were asking me, well, why'd you get him a little white doll? Like your daughter's not gonna, you know, be white. And I said, well, She's not because my husband is also black, but, but this, you know, this is, I want him to see the differences and the beauty. Like, I don't know who my, who my son might marry. I don't know who my daughter might marry or who they might partner up with to, to grow a family. And I want them to love any shade of child that's in their arms, you know? So again, that goes for being in the classroom or being in your home. Look at your toy box. Is it diverse? Does it represent the beauty of the world around you? And not just racially, like I said, with the clothes that they're wearing, the different hairstyles, um, gender identification. You know, there are a number of companies that create dolls that are doing a fantastic job of making sure that, that everyone is being represented. And I think that that's phenomenal because I'm sure Christopher, you, just like it was for me, that was not the way when we were growing up. It was like, here's Barbie and that's what she looks like, right? Yeah. yeah. And all of her friends look the same. And okay, so when you were talking about this, I just had this like memory pop up that I, I didn't even know that I had. But I remember I was in like, and it must have been like this really amazing, like progressive nurse lady. So I was like in first or second grade, I was sitting in the nurse's office, I think I was sick or something. And she had a little stack of books. And I remember two very clearly. One was a book about a girl who had diabetes. And one was a book about a girl who was blind. Okay. I remember reading those books and my little childhood, and this I think is the power of books for kids and toys. I remember very specifically being like, who do I know or who has diabetes, right? Like, because I remember in the book, <laughs> she had these like little snacks that she kept in her pocket and she was playing volleyball and she had to stop and take a, take her snack because her blood sugar was dropping. Like I said, I just remember this. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. In my little kid brain, I was like, I wonder who's in my classroom who has diabetes, right? <laughs> and then also the blind, the, the book about the girl who was blind and how she read with her hands. And then me being like, 
I want to go find somebody like this. And I think that's the power of it for kids. Like, especially if like you don't, you're not exposed to that. Like if you don't know those people in your real life, I think it opens up the child mind to be like, there are people out here like this and I want to find them. And then it makes it more, it makes it like easier to not make it weird. Right. It's just like a normal thing. I just remembered that, but I mean, what you just said, it makes it a normal thing, right? So especially when, when, when teachers or parents are saying to me, but Jocelyn, my, my child is too young to talk about these things. And I say, well, I have a couple of perspectives on it, but one of them is that it's about what we normalize for our kids. And when they see it, right, it becomes normal. So um, thinking about, like you said, just, just because I don't see this person in my actual like everyday life, I, maybe now you, now, maybe you do see them, but you weren't actually aware of it, Mm -hmm. you know, like, and now you become aware of it. And so then you can, you know, think about, okay, what are some ways that I might be able to advocate for a person that, um, that does have diabetes or that, um, has, you know, other just things that are going on in their life. But when you, when you show kids the books and they see it and it becomes normal and the types of questions that you ask, right? So just to be, 100% 100% you know transparent and and honest my my niece um shared a story of when she got off the bus one day some some of the students that were on the bus were talking about their parents and they were saying that for her and my my niece is she's black she said that they were saying that for her that they assumed that her mom was mean because she was black right so these were some some, some white students just saying that that her mother must be mean. And I was thinking to myself, well, I wonder where they got that. And of course she didn't ask them. She was, you know, she was like nine or 10 at the time. Um, but just, and so I was thinking to myself, okay, as far as, like you said, normalizing it, just reading a book about a young girl that is doing something with her grandmother and saying, how is this grandma nice? Just like your grandmother, you know? And so asking those questions that help them to see without it being this super deep thing, but just normalizing what they see. I mean, that's, that is exactly the point. Yeah. And like what you said earlier, when we were talking about being proactive, kids are going to learn and have things normalized no matter what. And it's a matter of, of knowing and recognizing that you have a responsibility to normalize things like, so that that's not what they normalize, right? Because our mainstream culture at this point of our lives in 2021 is normalizing a lot of things that are not okay. And it it can be as simple as shifting it in your home and like being bold enough to to do things like this and have these conversations with these really simple things as you guys are hearing like it can be really that simple um sharing books sharing toys like having conversations because kids will pick up on on things and we can we can direct it right and we can yeah we can not make it so that they're not internalizing only that stuff Kids are very, very perceptive. Um, there is actually, there's a book and I don't, I can't remember the, the author, but it's called um, Something Happened in Our Town. And there's um, a white girl and a black boy and they come home and they're talking to their families about what they heard at school and on the bus, right? And they were saying like, people always assume that because we're kids, we don't know what's going on. And like, but we do, you know, we hear the news too. And we hear like some of the older kids talking or, and so it's like kids, they, they do, they see, they hear, and they want to know in an age appropriate way, like what's going on and how it impacts them or how it impacts their, you know, their, their little world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And especially now with like social media everywhere, like, and if you have a smart TV, something that we learned this past year was like, the smart TV will choose what highlights they put on the TV when you turn on your screen. And we had to like do that because my kids would see like these news highlights and be like, what is that? Right. Right. And then we're like, okay, <laughs> we will talk about this, but thanks Apple for like <laughs> blindsiding us with this. We could right. have done that in, a, in a better way. <laughs> yeah. I, I agree. Right. Um, I'm going to have a conversation. I will. Yeah. Yeah, we could have done this in a better way. But when you do these other things that you're talking about with the, like the books and the, and the play and the like, it makes it easier of like, well, you know how like we talk about this stuff all of the time. This is the next level of it, I guess. Or I don't know. It probably just depends on the age of the kids. But for our ages of the kids last year, 14, 11, it was like, 
okay, this is the next level of conversation. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I think, I mean, honestly, like I said, as a middle school teacher, I used picture books in my classroom and I, and I still do like when, because I like, I want a simple way to explain something that's oftentimes more complex or can be a much more challenging concept to grasp. Picture books are perfect for, a, you know, for, for it being a very simple, um, for like, you know, a very simple explanation of what's happening. Um, and sorry, I know I, I'm throwing out a couple different examples, but I'm, there's a book behind me and <laughs> um, it's called The Case We're Loving by Selena Alco. And so this book is about obviously the loving couple and how they, how there was the Supreme Court case so that people could marry people of different um, races. Mm -hmm. And I had my, my nine-year-old read this because I wanted to start talking to him about, you know, about this concept and, but at the same time, this is a book that you could read with middle schoolers or high schoolers because it's very simple. It breaks everything down. And then you start to open up the conversation much more and say, okay, well, what does it look like when you are, when you actually go to the Supreme Court? How many justices are there? What is it, you know, just kind of breaking it down in a way. And especially with, with you know, with your children because they're a little bit older, you can have much more robust conversations and you, you're just building on that from the time that they're young all the way up. And don't be afraid to get these books and read them yourself. Like, mm -hmm. like the one that you're talking about with the two kids who go home at the end of the day and have very different, you know, conversations, I'm assuming, is really good for a parent to be like, okay, so these are the conversations. And I've had a lot of conversations like this with friends this past year of like, we're having this kind of a conversation around this event. And what kind of conversations are you having around this event? Because between my friends, depending on on their races and on their their backgrounds and their family dynamics like they're having different kinds of conversations than you know we are having at our home and i think just being aware of that is really important and it gives you like an i want to get that book i didn't get it yet i just based on what you said i'm like i need that book <laughs> well and so i just i just googled really fast on my phone so something happened in our town a child's story about racial injustice the author is donald moses and marianne salino and it's spelled C-E-L-A-N-O. So that book is really good. And I've read that with my, you know, again, with, with my children as well. But um, I agree. I mean, well, and the, the conversations are different because the experiences are different. I mean, I think the conversations that I have with my son <clears throat> are different than the conversations that some of my cousins are having with their kids who live in New York City. You know what I mean? So they, they live in a bigger city or some of my cousins that live in DC and they, you know, I was talking with a friend, she's a teacher and she's like, you know, we went, we're miles away from the Capitol. And so the conversations that teachers were having to have were so different than where I live because we're states away, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. And just like, as a parent, like being aware of that, of like the conversation you're having isn't the only conversation that is happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> being mm -hmm. Aware of those other conversations. Yeah, um, so I think that that, I mean, if you're okay with it, I feel like that's a really great segue into the last P, which is perspective. Um, and that's understanding that different people have different views. And that's actually a conversation I just had with my students on Thursday. We were talking about different perspectives around food or something like that. Pretty, pretty simple. But, um, you know, that even if we don't, even if you don't agree with that person's perspective, right, like, hear them out, listen to what they're saying, which it can be very difficult if you believe that this person is fundamentally wrong, but you, you don't know what you're going to be talking about if you can't listen to that person's perspective, right? And then start a conversation from there so that you can gain an understanding of why they might have this perspective. Um, or a perspective, you know, from the other side, if someone's sharing their perspective with you and you're like, oh, you know what? I never thought about it that way, right? Like, um, here comes another book for you, right? <laughs> so, uh, so we all, um, pretty much, I think everyone knows the story of the three little pigs, right? There's the three pigs and they each build their houses, one out of straw, one out of sticks, one out of bricks. The wolf comes and he huffs and he puffs and he blows their house down and destroys the little pig's lives, except for the third little pig who built his house out of bricks because he was just much more thoughtful and intentional in his house building. So 
there's there's that story that is uh, that is shared traditionally with a lot of younger students. But then there is the true story of the three little pigs, which is the wolf's perspective. And I just reread this with my kids the, like last week. That's why I'm thinking about it. But you know, in in that story, the wolf says when he when he he has a cold. And so that's why he's huffing and puffing because he's really sneezing. And when he blows the house down, it's like, I mean, good gracious, the pig is laying here and the pig's dead. So, I mean, I don't want to put this pig to waste. Like I might as well go ahead and eat him. So he eats the pig and he says, look, you know, you're judging me, but didn't you just have some ham the other day? Didn't you just have a cheeseburger the other day? Like perspective, right? So <laughs> that is a great set of stories that you can use with children to help them to understand the basic concept of perspective mm -hmm. and how it's important for us to listen to different people's perspectives, even if you don't fully understand it or agree, but that you can start those conversations so that you can understand and then people can make more informed decisions about if they want to adopt a perspective or not um, and just kind of how they want to engage with people that have these different perspectives. But starting in the home and starting in the classroom, like those are some ideal places to have these conversations in, in the classroom because you have so many students with different perspectives that it's a great place for students to learn how to constructively converse, how to, to, um, to, to, to disagree in a respectful way um, and, to, and to be able to share their thinking really thoughtfully and articulately, right? But then in home, it's a great way, it's a great place to have these these different conversations with perspective because these are people that you love. These are people that where you feel, you know, this is your home, you feel safe. And so you can more easily, typically, right? Not always, not always, but typically you can uh, more freely share your opinion and you know that you're not gonna be maybe judged as quickly, you're not gonna be judged as harshly for your opinion and someone can give you constructive feedback and it can help you to grow as a person. So that's why perspective is so important. Yeah, and the thing that I've noticed too with my own actively working to understand other people's perspective is that I often feel the need to defend my perspective because I am like perceiving a threat from a different perspective mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. when you can actually like take a moment to like put aside your your feelings of uncomfortable and realize that uncomfortable does not mean unsafe and yeah. like examine the other perspective and be like that's where they're coming from and that's okay and it's of no threat to me mm -hmm. you're able to see it in a different way and you're able to get a lot of clarity around what you believe or like you said be like okay so i i never thought of that i have a funny example of my husband and I going rounds about the moon landing I won't okay the details but we... <laughs> I'm like just tell me like just tell me what exactly it is that you think about this mm. and why because you've never said it like you've never let me see this perspective mm. and then you did and I'm like okay I never want to have this conversation again because I understand it now like I I understand where we are both at and it makes sense and right can put it to rest and I don't feel threatened and you don't feel threatened. Wow. Like just one, one conversation with clarity. Yeah. Yeah. And just, yeah, just putting it aside for a second and realize that you might be uncomfortable with it, but you're mm -hmm. still safe. It's not a threat. Right. Sometimes it might be. And then you can identify that too. Right. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. It's good for, you know, for, for both sides and understanding. Because um, there might actually be a threat, but then you can actually distinguish between that. <laughs> right. But I think that like that's distinguishing between the two and not just saying, well, if I feel uncomfortable, then it's automatically a threat, right? right. But just saying, how can I think through this? Right. Um, I read The Giver with my middle schoolers last semester. And there is, that's a, a, a novel by Lois Lowry. And there's a quote in there, The Giver says, um, there, there's like a situation where they, it's so, sorry, let me back up. In the game, it's like a, a utopian dystopian novel, right? So like a utopian society, what is idealistic? What is the, the best way that we can live our lives and and what like, you know, community, et cetera. And so inside of this utopian community, there is a situation where like a plane flies over the city and um, they don't know if they should shoot the plane down, 
right? But the, um, the giver offers them wisdom and says, I don't think you should shoot the plane down. And they're like, well, how do you know? And he says, because when I'm, when I'm thinking back on the history of, you know, of our people, of all this other stuff, many, many decisions have been made out of haste and in fear. And they were often the wrong decision, right? So if we would just slow down for a second and try to distinguish between, am I just afraid of this thing because I'm, I, don't, I don't understand it and I don't know, or am, am I afraid of it because it really is a legitimate threat? And so that's so good. But yeah. yeah, that is so good. Oh my gosh, I love this conversation. Okay, so <laughs> this is so helpful, Jocelyn. Thank you for just having this conversation with all of us. Um, I know that you have a lot of resources, and your site is designed around that. So everyone, I'm going to put the the resource, like the links to the resources that Jocelyn has inside of the show notes of this. If you're watching on Facebook, it will be in the description of the video. But then you can go check out her site and find all of the great book recommendations that she has. Because um, also, again, just in the spirit of transparency, if you're like me, you might take a look at your book selection and be like, wow, this needs to be improved. <laughs> um, and it's just been like an ongoing journey for me. It's better. But she has so many good book, re- book recommendations that I don't think I would have ever found. Right. Because I think a lot of times we just don't know what to look for. Um, so that is there. She also offers, um, consulting for teachers. Are you doing that right now? I am. A lot of it is is virtual, but I am. Okay. So I know you had the baby. So she does a lot of consulting for teachers. Um, she also is involved in some homeschooling, right? The VH homeschooling program that you can find on her site as well. If you are a homeschooler, which I know a lot of you are, um, just so many really, really good resources. And thank you for this conversation. Do you want to let us know where the best place to find you is? Sure. Yes. Thank you. Um, so I guess I'm on Instagram quite a bit. My handle is at I teach custom. Um, and then I do have a Facebook group. It's called the culture centered classroom that is predominantly for, um, teachers, but parents, you can jump into <laughs> learn some stuff. And then of course, as you said, on my website, I just, I have some digital courses and some picture book recommendations and other books. So, and blog posts. Yes. Oh yeah. And blogs. I've been, I've been going through all those blogs. So thank you so much. And we will see you all around in the, in the Instagram and all the other spaces. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. If you absolutely loved what you heard, I would love it if you went over and left me a review on iTunes. And if you do listen to these instructions real quick, because I have something special for you. When you go to submit your review on iTunes, take a screenshot of the five-star review and your words before you submit it, then hit submit and head over to your email and send me an email at Krista K R I S-T-A at motherhoodsimplified.com. When you show me the review that you wrote, I will send you a free one hour surface decluttering workshop with real life examples of how to declutter the surfaces in your home, like the couches, the stair piles, the counter piles, your nightstands, your dressers, your dining table, your craft table, an hour long workshop in exchange for your positive review. It would mean so much to me and your reviews are how I reach more moms like you. And if you haven't joined us over on social media, come join us in the Facebook group where I record all of these episodes live and in real time. You get a sneak behind the scenes of me and my everyday life. You'll probably get to see my kids because they run through the background as we're recording. And I would love to connect with you over there. I'm also on Instagram and I would love to connect with you there too. Other than that, thank you so much for tuning in today and I'll see you on the next episode. Hey, before you go, I have a question to ask you. Would you please leave me a five-star review if you are listening on iTunes? It helps me grow my show and reach more moms like you who are wanting to declutter without becoming a full-blown minimalist. 
you love the show, I would love it if you shared something specific that you find valuable or helpful or that you just enjoy about listening to this show. It would mean the world to me if you took time out of your day to do that. And while you're at it, head over to motherhoodsimplified.com to listen to more podcast episodes or check out our Facebook group, Instagram, just to connect on social media. If you love these episodes and if you love this show, please tag me. I love to connect with you over there. Podcasts are kind of like a one-way conversation where I feel like I'm talking to you and with you. But when you tag me on social media, I feel like we can take that one step further and actually connect with each other, which is the whole point of me starting this podcast and community in the first place is to be able to connect with moms like you who are wanting to declutter without becoming a full-blown minimalist. So tag me on your Instagram stories. I'm motherhood underscore simplified. Check out the Motherhood Simplified Facebook group or head over to the site and just find even more blogs, podcasts, decluttering courses to help you continue on your decluttering journey. Thanks so much. And I'll talk to you soon.